This podcast is brought to you by Future Women, a new home for women to come together online and in person. Become a member to gain full access to Future Women's content, events and community. Plus, our packed calendar of member-only social club events. For more details, head to futurewomen.com. Hello, I'm Brooke Boney, your host for Season 2 of Next Generation Innovators, a podcast where we tap into the stories behind some of Australia's most successful entrepreneurs and how they've scaled their ideas into global businesses. So whether you're in business, you own one, or you dream of doing it yourself, these conversations will guide you through the ups and downs of startups, from ideation and development to investment and scale. Some of these women are incredibly inspiring and I cannot wait to share these conversations with you. Imagine starting the job of your dreams at one of the biggest tech disruptors in history. Then, three weeks in, the biggest scandal to rock Silicon Valley hits. I've got a couple of choices. I can get out of here and say, well, that was the wrong place to join, or I can really stand up and be part of the change that's necessary in this business. That's what today's guest Jodie Oster faced when she joined Uber. While others would run, she stayed and she listened and was part of changing the internal culture from the ground up. But let's go back to where it all began. In 2007, Jodie was at a professional crossroads. Wanting to gain the skills and confidence to transition from medicine to business, she enrolled in Melbourne Business School to study an MBA with the help of a scholarship from the Helen McPherson Smith Fellowship. After graduating in 2009, Jodie travelled before landing a consulting role at Bain & Co. She stayed with Bain & Co for two years before a new startup called Scoopon came knocking, launching Jodie into the world of tech. After a stint as the general manager of operations at Scoopon, Jodie moved to Silicon Valley in 2013, joining contracting startup Thumbtack. Jodie was Thumbtack's 25th employee, joining the company as the director of customer operations before moving into head of people operations, leading the company through a period of enormous growth and transformation. After three years at Thumbtack, an opportunity to move back to her hometown of Melbourne to head up the local arm of Uber Eats presented itself. In 2018, Jodie took on the role of General Manager ANZ at Uber Eats. Shortly after her appointment, Jodie was at the forefront of driving cultural change after a global sexual harassment crisis just after she joined the popular food delivery platform. Jodie is raw. She's honest. She's a mother. She's a partner. And she admits that she doesn't always get it right, but she's an eternal optimist who believes in saying yes. Future Women's Next Generation Innovators podcast is brought to you by Uber. Uber ignites opportunity by setting the world in motion. Uber believe good things happen when people can move, whether across town or toward their dreams. Opportunities appear, open up, become reality. What started as a way to tap a button to get a ride has led to billions of moments of human connection as people go all kinds of places in all kinds of ways with the help of Uber's technology. Jodie, welcome to Future Women's Next Generation Innovators. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. 
Take us back to the beginning. Tell me about how you were as a teenager. Were you well behaved at school, like a school captain type, or were you more of the rebellious one? Uh, I think I was a little bit of both, to be honest. I um, I was a school captain, but uh, I, I certainly was a little bit cheeky and managed to have fun. But I think I realised from a pretty early age that if you make good decisions and you can show people that you make good decisions, you get uh, a bit more rope. And so I was very careful about uh, where I was cheeky so that I didn't lose uh, any of the responsibility that I'd worked so hard to gain. And so they were some of those, uh, you know, foundational qualities that really set you up for your career, figuring out where you can be cheeky and where you have to be serious. I think so. I think that's right. You don't always get it right. I still don't always get it right, but it's fun trying to work it out. And when did you have your first brush with business and, and how did it impact you? I was always, I think, interested in earning my own money from a young age. And so I used to do things like chores around the house or, you know, washing cars or washing boats where we went for holidays uh, to see if I could you know, have a good amount of pocket money coming in, which I liked. But I think that probably the thing that had the biggest impact for me was my first, you know, real paid job on the books, uh, which was at Coles Deli in Taronga in um, in Melbourne, which is now the site of their headquarters. And uh, I worked in the deli, rotisserie chickens, meat slices, the whole unglamorous lot. And I remember that that feeling of getting my first paycheck and how absolutely empowering that was even though it wasn't a lot of money, just thinking this is real and, you know, if I show up and I just do my job, I can actually make money. And that just felt extraordinary. I was 14 years old in nine months, or <laughs> whatever the legal age was <laughs> then, and it just felt fantastic. Do you remember what you spent it on? I don't, actually. It was probably, probably not something memorable. <laughs> <laughs> I think I spent my first uh, paycheck from KFC on a South Park shirt, and I didn't no. even watch South Park. I just thought it was cool. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't remember. <laughs> yeah, well, I hope it was something better than that. Now, you studied yeah. medicine at uni and became an emergency doctor. What did you learn working in that high-stakes, stressful environment that helps you in your current job? I mean, I always say you know, when things get stressful at work, you know, it's not a life or death situation. We're just making TV here. But for you, Mm -hmm. it actually is a life or death situation. It was an emergency. Uh, When you do get a Category 1 person come in, it is absolutely life or death. But you get plenty of Category 5s who, you know, uh, probably could have waited and not come into the emergency department. So I think it it taught me a lot of things that at the time I didn't realise would be really powerful in a business context. And I think the first one, as you called out, is keeping you cool under pressure. You know, the things that you see and the things that you have to do in an emergency department um, are sometimes terrifying. And so if you make a mistake in business, I always have that that reference point of, as you said, well, you know, nobody died. Uh, I think we're going to be okay. And so that's really helped me sort of laugh through and support my team through mistakes that we make. But the other two things are really... I think a way of thinking that are really powerful and from medicine, one is triage. So that's basically prioritisation. And that's really important in emergency to say, is this a life-threatening situation and you need to drop everything and deal with it right now? Or is this just noise and you probably don't need to look at it ever? And 
using that in a, a fast-moving tech business in particular is really important because you get a lot of non-urgent interruptions that could completely derail your day. Recognising that you shouldn't disrupt your day to pay attention to those has been really important. And then the third thing is really, um, it's something I've, I've sort of labelled hypothesis-driven problem solving, which is having an answer right from the beginning and then being selective about the information that you get to prove or disprove that hypothesis. And it's quite a, it's quite a fast way of getting to the right answer because the alternative is go find all the facts and eventually work out what the answer is. This way, you know, you're standing at the end of the bed, you've read two sentences from the nurse and you've had a five-minute conversation with the patient. What do you think they have? And therefore, what physical examination are you going to do? What needles and radiation are you going to expose them to to prove or disprove that? And taking that into business has been an incredibly efficient way of solving problems uh, when you've got a lot to do. So if you have a problem pop up in a business sense, what, you know, what Mm -hmm. sort of, do you have an example of of something? It doesn't Um, have to be specific, (laughs) Obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm trying to think of something that's not, you know, too too commercially sensitive. But let's say what line of business should Uber go into next would be an example. And there's a million answers to that question. And you could probably spend a lifetime researching all the things that you could sell uh, and whether you should do it and eventually pop out with an answer. And by the time you come up with that, your competitors have probably already done it. And so you instead would start with a hypothesis that says the next line of business we should go into is flying cars, for example, which is a business line that we are looking into. And if so you start with that statement at the top of the page and you've, you've had a hunch, you've probably got a few signals that have made you put that at the top of the page, which is you know based on your, your core competencies as a business, we are good at this, it plays into our platform strategy. But then you, you write a bunch of things underneath it that say what would have to be true for that statement to be the right answer. So it would be things like the vehicle and battery technology will exist in the next two years. The um, demand for this type of product is sufficient for it to be a good idea commercially. The level of safety and compliance that we could achieve would meet social expectations. And you probably have five or six statements underneath that say, if these things were true, then that hypothesis would be true. And then you can selectively under each of those statements, work out, well, what facts do I need to collect to see whether these things are true? And so it's a much more, you can fit it on a page. And so it's a much sort of quicker and more effective and targeted way of saying, is my hypothesis right? And in that process, you might discover, oh, I've actually hit on something that says, you know what, while researching whether the vehicle and battery technologies can be ready in two years' time, that you know, all the researchers say, actually, the battery technology is going to take 15 years to develop. Therefore, that's probably a hypothesis-killing fact that I've just discovered, and my hypothesis is wrong. Let me go to the next thing. And you haven't spent you know, years trying to find what business you should go into next. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. And so it seems like you get to the answer quicker because you've already developed a bunch of sort of checklist things that rule in or out one of the options. Which, yeah, I think, I think yeah, the, the I, only watch out really is, you know, there is a really well-known bias, which is sort of confirmation bias, which is looking for things that prove an idea that you want to be true. Mm-hmm. And so when you use this method, you do have to be really careful that you're not just trying to prove that your idea is the right idea. You have to do enough 
diligence to say, well, what else have I considered? And am I really looking for evidence that this might be wrong? You seem like the most calm and steady person (laughs) under pressure, (laughs) you know, just going through this checklist, talking through these things. Is that something that you developed, uh, you know, through dedication and training and experience in, in an emergency department? Or is that something that you think that you were born with? I think it is a bit of both, uh, and I think I have mellowed a bit over time too. Because there are things that I do get really fired up about. I wouldn't say stressed about, but I get you know passionate or pissed off sometimes <laughs> about things. I grew up in a very sort of positive and encouraging family environment, and so I think I've always been an optimist and had a real can-do attitude, and that certainly helps. Uh, But then, you know, over time, I've seen just really how lucky I am as as a human being. And so I've built up this bank of things that says to me, well, there are so many people who are worse off than me and so many situations that that are worse off than the one I'm experiencing. And it, it just kind of gives me a lot of perspective. You know, the more of those reference points I collect and say, you know, you're okay, you're having a really good time and this shouldn't stress you out, the easier it is for me to step back and just be calm and and rational about it. So what was it that made you decide to, to switch careers and go to business school? I'd say the primary reason was curiosity for what existed in the world beyond what I was doing in medicine. I looked also at the people around me and particularly the leaders in emergency and saw that I didn't think a lot of them were particularly inspired or excited many decades into the the job that they were doing. And I really liked working in emergency, but I thought, well, in 20 or 30 years, if I'm going to feel like that, I better create some alternative options for myself. If you pair those two things and you say, you know, I'm a really curious person. I wanted to learn what was going on outside of medicine. And by the way, a lot of people are quite jaded in this profession many decades in. There was a motivation to go and uh, learn about something new. And I also was aware of the fact that I think in, in government and in the healthcare system, the public healthcare system, a lot of things were done because they'd always been that way or because you'd been there for the longest time and therefore you had the decision over that thing instead of the best idea wins and the ability to sort of really question things and be creative didn't exist in a way that I found satisfying in that environment. And I thought, well, where does that exist? And you look to business and that's a broad term, but but you can see that in at least private industry, there's a lot more room to be creative and make mistakes and, and, and test and learn things. And I thought, well, if I go and work in business, in inverted commas, maybe I'll learn some things that I could eventually bring back into the healthcare system. And then I thought, well, how do I how do I go work in business if I've got a medical degree? And I discovered this thing called an MBA. And, and so I actually just started the diploma of business, uh, which was the first couple of subjects at Melbourne Business School. And I thought, oh, this is actually made exactly for people like me who don't really have a good business foundation and who need a broad introduction to everything from accounting to marketing to organizational psychology. I just thought this is exactly what I'm looking for. Now I'm going to be able to understand the, you know, the business section of the newspaper and that feels really good to somebody who's a curious person. Did it feel like you were taking a huge risk at the time or did you feel as though you were making a completely calculated decision, you knew what the risks were going to be? I can't imagine it would have been easy to tell people and and 
you know, to, to leave a, a steady job to go and study? It, it is when you have a medical degree because if it doesn't work out, you can always go back and be a doctor. So I don't that's like to take good credit for being option. brave because, no, because it's true. I mean, that's even true today. I, I, I would have to do a lot of supervised hours if I went back to clinical practice, but I, I will always have that degree and that ability to go work as a doctor. And so that is a pretty safe place to take risks from. And as I said before, I'm from a very a very supportive social and family environment. And so, again, even if I take the wrong risk and end up in a really bad spot, I know that I have that support around me socially and, and financially. So I I think I recognised that fairly early on and thought, well, my fallback position is pretty good here. And so I felt actually pretty compelled to go try those new things and to take some risk um, because I just knew that even if it was a disaster, it was okay. And I, I do find that people, I don't think people do a good job of assessing what they're fallback is and they probably underestimate how much of a risk I suppose safety net they have and so if you do have financial and social support and you can go back to the job you had before not the exact one but at least the industry then why not give it a shot it's usually not a one-way door it's usually a two-way door you can go through and try it and if it's not for you it will be inconvenient and it will be slightly painful and it might even be embarrassing but you can really usually go back to how it was before is that how you is that your approach to um, evaluating risk you think of the best case scenario being you know your dreams coming true and then the worst case scenario that you you know you go back to your fallback option is that the advice that you would give to other people thinking about switching or pursuing something that's a little bit different from what they're doing now yeah I think I think it is really understanding what's the best and worst case scenario here and how permanent is the decision that you're making if the if the worst case scenario is you know death and you only get one shot you're really taking a massive risk there but most of the time it's nothing like that most of the time it's like, oh, this might be hard and it might be um, uncomfortable. If it's no good, then it won't take too much of an effort to undo it. So <laughs> I think that's really when you push people on it, what's the worst thing that can happen? It's those sorts of things that come out. They're like, well, you know, what if I'm not good at it? Or what if I don't like it? Or what if I realise I've made the wrong decision? And my answer to those people is, well, so what? So what if those are the things, you know, it, it, it's okay to try those things and take those risks because because the upside, if you do discover something new that you love or new that you can learn or new people um, that are inspiring to you, how much value did you get from taking that risk? And for me, that has been, there has been extraordinary upside in that. It's a a very inspiring way to think of things. One of the things that you just said there that I think is really interesting is, you know, you might be a little bit embarrassed, but that's enough to deter people from from chasing their dreams. Have you ever had an experience where you have fallen flat on your face and thought, oh gosh, I've really, I've really made a mess of this now. I've made the wrong decision. How did you turn it around if you, if you have had that happen? Well, I don't know if I've got a really you know, like an explosive fell on my face, but I have certainly been in in jobs that weren't really for me. But I think in hindsight, I know that I got so much out of that experience, even if I didn't enjoy it. And so, you know, being a management consultant is a really good example. Working in top team management consulting, I think probably wasn't a great fit for my personality. And over the couple of years that I did that, it was one of those things where you sort of get up in the morning and you think, oh, do I really want to do this? And that was the first actually sort of business role that I took after medicine. And so it was a really stark contrast of what am I doing? I'm putting on a suit and going into this funny office environment and making these 
you know, hundreds of pages of slide decks and does any of this really matter? And so it was sort of a slow, a slow realization of, I think I'm in the wrong place, but it gave me a really good foundational toolkit that I took with me into the next job. And so it was just recognizing, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to be in this sort of job that was the choice I made to get out of there. I'd say probably a, um, maybe a slightly more dramatic version of that was my last year at Suntac, which was the company I worked at before Uber. I was in San Francisco and I had been working in operations for a few years there and they asked me to be what, what they call VP of people, which is basically running HR and recruiting and, and all of the things that come with that. It was at the time one of the most important roles in the company because if we didn't hire enough software engineers, we weren't going to be able to grow. And so I was responsible for growing the software engineering team amongst many other things. And it was honestly the hardest, probably least enjoyable year of my professional career. And I, you know, do I wish that I hadn't made that decision and said, yeah, sure, I'll try this thing and, you know, experienced all of those tears and that pain during that year? Well, it actually has made me an infinitely better leader because I understand what HR and recruiting is about really deeply and was able to build on that in, in my subsequent role. So I think all in all, I've had these really sort of low, fall flat on my face jobs and decisions, but in hindsight, I don't wish that I hadn't done them. Mm. So speaking about Silicon Valley, is it as cutthroat and as fast-paced as it looks in the movies? What surprised you the most (laughs) about living and working there? Um, Yes, it is a very intense place. My observations were that the the calibre of people who are successful in Silicon Valley are extraordinary. And that's really fun to be around. Really inspiring, motivating, smart people who are super driven and ambitious. The downside of that is I found people take themselves very seriously and are very much defined by their work. I totally drank the Kool-Aid and got sucked into that for the time that I was there and it was really fun and energising. It also was completely exhausting and meant that I really compromised time and relationships outside of work and not not a place that I would like to be or a, an environment that I'd like to work in forever. Who did you admire in that world? What sort of principles would you say your role models from that world had that you've you've taken with you or tried to emulate in your own day-to-day life and work? I the, the people for that during that time for me that were most influential were my my peers and the founders of Suntech. It it was the people I spent the most time with and they were I think some of the most intellectually curious individuals that I've ever seen. They have this sort of wonder for the world and how things could be and really don't see a lot of constraints. And that was just a fantastic group of people to be around. And I, I really, you know, really tried to embrace that attitude of, well, you know, what what if it just could be different? And why do we have to do it that way? And, you know, what if we could build this crazy new thing? So, so that attitude, I think, has stuck with me. There is probably a second bit 
you know, the person that comes to mind is, is Jonathan, who was my boss at Thumbtack, one of the founders, just this like level of optimization and efficiency that is wild. And he takes that not just into his work life, but into his personal life. And I can only sort of aspire to be as, you know, well-organized and outsourced as effectively as he does. It was quite hilarious. But I, I, I do think, uh, you know, a little bit of chaos and a little bit of a human touch is, is important for me. So I just, I take the principle of his like, listen, you should do the tasks that you are best at and not the other things. You know, you should, you should get other people around you to do the things that you're not good at. I think it's the essence of what I take from him. Mm. Get the kids to pack the dishwasher. (laughs) (laughs) I I could could tell you about our home job board. (laughs) I actually have, I have unloaded the dishwasher as my job this week. Oh, do you? So it's a tough week. Can we talk about Scoop On for a second? Because that was your your first job out of, um, you know, a few years after after uni. You know, you were the general manager. It was your first job in a, in a startup. Mm-hmm. What was that like? I mean, how did that compare to, to going into work uh, at somewhere like Thumbtack where, you know, things were already a little bit established? The frame of mind that I was in when I started at Scoop On was, I'd left medicine, I'd done two years at Bain and I had had a baby who was at the time not quite four months old and that was our first baby. So I had experienced a lot of change with a new parent and kind of newly outside of medicine in the business world but hadn't really sort of found my passion in consulting. And so what I remember on the, there's two things that I remember really starkly from my early experience with Scoopon. One is negotiating my contract with Paul Riding, who was the the group CEO at the time, and saying, well, you know, what other benefits do I get with the contract? You know, because at Bain we had, you know, a phone allowance and we had a travel allowance, we had a dry cleaning allowance. And I'm going through this whole list and he just stops me and he says, listen, pay is the package, that's it. We pay you the money and you come and do the job. There's none of that other fluff around there. (laughs) And I just thought, oh, okay, well, this is a little bit different. And then walking into the office that first day and we were in, you know, a fairly modest space. I would say in Moorabbin and just this very strong feeling of what you see is what you get. It, there is no, you know, there's, there's just no, there's no bullshit around it if I can say that. There's the, the people are who, who they say they are, the words that come out of their mouth are exactly what they mean to say and nobody's got time for you know, anything that's not absolutely necessary because the environment is so fast and so fierce that you've just got to get on with it. And I just fell in love with that straight away. I just thought I can really be me here. There's no pretense and just get on with the job. Mm -hmm. And I don't need a suit and a, you know, a shiny desk and laptop around me for that work to be fantastic. I just need great people who are direct and want to do excellent work. And I, I really felt that the minute I walked in there. And I think that is a common feeling that I've had when I've stayed in in high growth tech because there is very much this sense of you should be your same self at work as you are out of work. And I think that's not true in a lot of corporate Australia. And it just frees up all of this amazing headspace and and energy that you otherwise would spend trying to put on a front at work to actually put into the ideas that you're thinking about and the work that you're doing. And I just, I much prefer that. You paint a very, that's a very gritty and realistic picture of of what it's like to to work at a startup. Do you think that, that that's the reality for 
for for most of of those startups that are over in in Silicon Valley as well? Uh, If you're early stage, absolutely. You haven't proven the concept and you don't have the funding to have the nice things. Once you get the funding, you get to have nice things. And and I think, you know, probably Google has introduced a bunch of perks and benefits that lots of other companies copy around serving lunch and having cool things in the office and kombucha fridge, hoodies and t-shirts and that kind of thing. That (laughs) happens too. But in the early stages, it is, you know, you, you fit in a small space and you just have the things that you need. It, it also a little bit, I think, depends on the personality of the founders because I think that's pretty pervasive in a, an early to mid-stage startup. If the founders are running the business and that, then what they care about, their values are really palpable in the, in the environment and, and the values of the business. And the other thing that you mentioned there was that you just, you'd had a, a baby and so you took, a, 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 took on a new job um, mm-hmm. when your baby was four months old. Yeah. Is that is that a place that you have worked up to, or have you sort of owned your independence um, from from the very beginning of your career? Because it is an area that professional women are often judged on, and, and it comes with a lot of guilt as well. Yeah, I'm definitely not immune to the guilt. So I constantly struggle with: Am I spending enough time with my partner and kids, and how do I strike that balance? Uh, But I am really clear that I love working and I get a lot of satisfaction and inspiration from working in jobs that I like and with people that I like. And so once I sort of accepted that and said, okay, well, I'm going to give myself permission to do that, then it makes it a little bit easier to sort of deal with the guilt because you say, well, work is going to be a part of my life. I don't have to work this hard, this much all the time. I think that'll ebb and flow over my lifetime, but but I think it's always going to be there as a feature. So I talk a lot about that with with my partner, Rachel, who is a critical part of finding that balance and making our household run together. Mm. And I think we have never nailed it. You know, every year brings different challenges. Every stage of our kids' lives brings different challenges. Every different location that we have or job that we have brings different challenges, different amounts of travel, different kinds of pressures you know, different levels of family support was one of the reasons we moved back to Melbourne is because my family's here and really, really helpful and we didn't have that in San Francisco and that was really tough. So it is it is a juggle. I am not I'm not apologetic for the fact that I work and that I like it, but it doesn't mean that working and being uh, a good parent and partner is, is not like a, a constant challenge. So how do you make decisions as a couple? Because, you know, you've got to balance two competing careers and sets of interests mm. and two sets of dreams. And that sometimes, I guess, means being pulled in different directions. So how yeah. do you how do you communicate through that? Well, communication is probably the key. It's saying, okay, you know, we've got a decision ahead of us. What should we do? And making sure that we both have input into that. Somebody's going to change jobs or, or accept a promotion or wants to move. Obviously, those are huge things that we both need to feel comfortable with, and we've had to we've had to trade off at different times where we can't both have the things that we want most. And so, when we were in San Francisco and we were having an amazing time, and I just loved the job that I was doing at Thumbtack, my partner was asked to come back to Melbourne and open the Australian office for Eventbrite, who she was working for, and that was a huge opportunity. So that that was really hard for me because I didn't want to leave, but we made a decision that we wanted to support her in that opportunity because it was extraordinary and so we came back 
we didn't stay a long time. We only stayed a year for her to do that role. And then the next decision was I was offered this VP of People role at Thumbtack, which was a big deal. And so we packed up everything and went back. And and we have those conversations and trade-offs very openly all the time. And sometimes we get it wrong. You know, this year we've both had really big demanding jobs and we thought that we had chosen the right, I suppose, balance of childcare. It hasn't gone that well, to be honest. So we're looking at next year and saying, okay, well, what do we need to change? What trade-offs do we need to make for next year to feel a little bit easier than this year? You've got to take yourself off that job board. You've got to stop unpacking that dishwasher. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That's well, we only, there's only the eight key. jobs. We get two each and we change them every week. And, you know, <laughs> unloading the dishwasher is okay. It's not the worst one, I'm sure. Picking up the dog right. poo, I'm sure, is Picking is, up the uh, dog poo is the worst one. It's the worst yeah, one, yeah. Exactly. Now, that's exactly right. <laughs> you've said in the past that it's a joke amongst your peers that you're a bit of a pin-up girl for diversity, uh, being gay, female, Jewish, a mother, over 40. You've yep. avoided <laughs> these labels up until this point, but you've decided that it was important to, to talk more openly about these things now. Why is that? It has never been particularly for me a feature that any of those labels have really sort of changed the way I've moved through the world, or at least I didn't think so. You know, I've never really at work defined myself as, you know, gay or a woman or or any of those things. But I think particularly as I've become more senior, I've realized how important it is for other people to see that I am those things and that I can be really successful because they don't always see other role models who are like them. Maybe they feel like they've been discriminated against or they have been held back in some way. And so it's really important for them to say, I know someone who has had the success that I aspire to have and that person is gay or a parent or a female. So particularly at Uber, I think that that's been encouraged to sort of stand up and say, I affiliate with these groups and, you know, really actively support the employee resource groups for women and um, LGBT parts of our team. So I think it just has been, yeah, it's just been something that I think I've sort of been more vocal about, even though it hasn't really changed anything for me about the way I work or, or the way I interact with people in the workplace, but just saying, yeah, like, I'm, I'm really proud of who I am and those things, they may not define my day-to-day behaviour, but I'm certainly not embarrassed about any of them and in their own ways they have shaped me and my values. Yeah, definitely. And it, and it is. It's a, you're a role model for, for other people and when people can't see themselves reflected in those sorts of roles and they think that they're that they're not for them in in some cases so it's 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 a it's a great thing to be more vocal about that I just wanted to talk to you about one of the things that happened you know not very long after you joined Uber so Uber's leadership team in Australia has five women and three men and you're all in sort of regular contact supporting one another but it wasn't everyone's experience as I mentioned three weeks in Susan Fowler published a blog describing her experience as a an engineer at Uber claimed that she was sexually harassed and propositioned by her manager and then ignored when her concerns were escalated and that sexism was rife within the organisation. What did you do? You turned your attention to what you could do as a leader at Uber in Australia. What was it that you did? So I think I'll say first and foremost that my experience at Uber has been incredibly positive, but I recognise that that may not have been the experience that everybody has had. And so at that moment, when I thought, oh my goodness, 
you know, this person's come out really publicly with what, what sounds like a terrible experience if it's true, I thought, well, I've got a couple of choices. I can get out of here and say, well, that was the wrong place to join or I can really stand up and be part of the change that's necessary in this business. You know, I did stand up and I did label myself as a female leader, as a gay woman, as a parent, so that I stood out as an example of, of what was possible. In particular, I made space to listen. I think the default for a company is often to talk a lot in those situations and to try and explain and justify and fill the space, the awkwardness with talking. And so really making space to listen was really important. I encouraged and set up a lot of listening sessions in Australia, New Zealand and across the region. And that was quite uncomfortable for a lot of leaders who like to talk and give confidence that we have the answers. So really just make space to listen. Say to people, how do you feel about what you've heard from Susan Fowler and other people around you? What are you thinking? What has your experience been? And that was really important for people to be able to express how that news had affected them. And then I did speak up when it was important to. I'm not afraid to name the elephants in the room. Uh, I'm not afraid to encourage people to talk about their experiences, even if speaking about their experiences makes other people around them uncomfortable. So people who had felt excluded because of their gender or sexuality or style, you know, white men in the company who were petrified to do anything because they thought they might offend someone. Team members who felt really proud of Uber, who suddenly felt really ashamed in front of their family and friends because they felt implicated by association. And so speaking up to say, this is uncomfortable, but we all need to sit with this discomfort without judgment and without switching into solution mode. That was really important. But then you know, obviously the initial story passes and you think, okay, well, what now what can we do? You know, probably a, a whole hour's conversation for another day. But the things that have been really important in the organization have been committing to transparency, training on diversity and inclusion, best practice at scale. So how do you teach everybody that diversity is better for business, but it's not just about having the right people in the team. It's how do you really make people feel like they can be themselves and be included because that's almost more important than getting the diversity in the team. Really looking at the candidate and employee experience, you know, what do our job descriptions look like? Uh, how do our review and performance processes look? Are we describing our job competencies in a way that is inclusive? Really leaning into these employee resource groups that I talked about, so making sure that they're well supported and funded. I think now more than 12 ERGs across the world uh, and that, you know, supporting everything from socioeconomic diversity to gender diversity to different sexual orientations. There's, there's a lot of groups that helping our teams feel like they understand how to be inclusive. So, you know, there are so many things that have improved and changed. I feel really glad that I was able to contribute to what was a really important period of introspection and, and improvement at the company. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like you had an approach that, you know, maybe has been missing from uh, from a lot of other organisations who have been through similar things. Now, I don't want to finish on that. Um, let's pivot a little bit mm -hmm. for the last question. What are your plans for the future what sort of career would you would you like to have into the future? What is your ultimate aim? Are you going to pivot again? Go back to medicine? Do something completely different? <laughs> um, the truth is I've never had a plan and I've never imagined, you know, what I want to be when I grow up and, you know, I've never, I've, I've never had that. I've always just been really open to the opportunities that present themselves to me and, start with yes 
if someone gets someone comes to you, be really open minded to why you should look at that and maybe why you should take that risk instead of the safe way to do it, which is to say, Oh no, I'm good, thanks. I'll just stay where I am. So I'll continue to, I think, apply that philosophy to the opportunities that, that are presented to me and they, you know, I'm, I'm lucky. I'm, I'm, I have great friends and networks and, you know, all sorts of things come up all the time and just sort of see where the next adventure comes from. Most importantly for me, it's am I, am I getting as much out of this experience as this experience is getting out of me? If the answer continues to be yes, then just keep going. You know, I'm having a great time in the, in the job that I'm doing right now. So I'm not really thinking about what's next. I'm just really trying to make the most of the experience that I'm having right now. Jodie, you are an inspiration. Thank you so much for joining us. Good luck with getting your name off the Unpacking the Dishwasher <laughs> roster. Um, you really are just a, an incredible woman and a, and a real a real role model for, for leaders who, you know, who'd like to listen more than they speak and, you know, live their values. You know, I, I just, I, the ultimate optimist, a woman of my own heart. Thank I you. Love it. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank Thanks you, for Thank you for taking the time to talk to me. I've enjoyed the conversation. That was the incredibly inspiring Jodie Oster, who is the general manager ANZ at Uber Eats. Please go ahead and leave us a review, tap those stars, and if you've got a friend who needs a little bit of inspiration, send them the podcast. Thanks and see you next week. This podcast is supported by Uber. Uber ignites opportunity by setting the world in motion. What started as a way to tap a button to get a ride has led to billions of moments of human connection as people go all kinds of places in all kinds of ways with the help of Uber's technology.